the other day I went to the Art Institute. Um, it was Friday, it was a nice day, and I decided to go downtown and go for kind of a walk. And I have um, an Art Institute pass that I bought earlier in the year, just so that on days like that I could, if I happened to be near the Art Institute, pop in for the last hour that it was open between 4 and 5 and just kind of look at the art. And um, my kind of favorite stuff is more towards the 19th century uh, European kind of art when it became a little bit more photorealistic before, but before it got really, really modern and kind of strange. And so I was just looking around some of the paintings in that second floor area. I don't know if you've ever been up there um, into the little, little tiny galleries where there aren't that many people. And one of the paintings that struck me, oddly, uh, maybe was this uh, painting called The Bathers by Bouguereau. Bouguereau has done a lot of beautiful religious paintings of, uh, like, have you ever seen the angels playing the violin in front of Mary holding Jesus? It's, like, very realistic, and, but transfigured and beautiful. Well, this is just two naked women bathing on, like, a seashore. And, fortunately, I wasn't wearing my priest clothes. I was just wearing kind of uh, street clothes, so maybe it would have looked even weirder if uh, a young man in priest clothing just looking at these two naked women. But uh, I think what's beautiful about art sometimes is that it helps us to see things like the, for the first time, in a way that's not our normal way of seeing. Like if you were just to run into two people like that, that vulnerable and that naked, it would, it would be shocking. But through the artist's eyes and mind and through his hand, you can kind of see, especially something as mysterious as the human being, the human figure, like for the first time. And actually what I thought of as I was looking at these two figures was Adam, the first time he saw Eve in Genesis, and how amazed he was. He said, at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He would have seen her naked, but without shame. You know, in that first look of pure amazement, pure wonder, and not in some possessive way that we sinners tend to to, um, use each other or objectify one another. He would have seen her as a person, and how amazed he would have been to find in this mysterious empty world of objects another person like him. And that's why he was amazed and wondered, but longed for her, longed to be in communion with her. Because he he said, at last, someone just like me, but different. Someone equal to me on my plane with the same faculties of freedom and affection, memory, imagination, and intellect, but someone different that will call me out of myself to know her and to be known by her I think it's a big problem if we lose the amazement at what it means to be a human being, at just how odd it would be to find another person like you on the earth. Because when you look at the naked human figure, you say, wow, they are vulnerable. G.K. Chesterton said, we're the only animal that can't sleep in their own skin. Meaning every other animal is sort of built for nature. The spider knows how to make a web. The beaver knows how to make a dam. Uh, you know, everything knows how to fend for itself in nature. Except when the human being comes on the scene, it's just this completely dependent, helpless, vulnerable being. and needs to be trained and protected and educated and fed for 18, maybe 20, 30 years sometimes before they can be independent and really make their own way in the world. But at the same time, they're the most amazing creature in nature. They're the only creature that writes poetry or that makes paintings. Chesterton also said, we often think of the caveman as this sort of like uncivilized, brutish, kind of half animal, half ape, half human being. And this, certainly our evolutionary perspective lets us 
kind of think of that missing link, like what, what was the link between apes uh, and human beings? But he says, the only thing we really know about the caveman was what he was doing in the cave, which was that he was painting, making art, creating beauty that reflected the beauty that was around him and her. It's not like monkeys made really bad paintings and then all of a sudden human beings made better ones. It's just that all of a sudden this freak enters the scene, the human person. Let us never lose our amazement at what it means to be human. But what is that solitude, that feeling of being kind of a freak in nature, being a foreigner, an alien, and yet transcending nature, being sort of the jewel in the crown of nature? Well, the Bible says it means we're made in the image of God. Maybe that's why we feel alone. We feel this solitude. We think, they think there's so much to me. There's so much depth in here. I don't even know myself. Much less could I ever share myself with another person, like the true me. And I could never really know another human subject. They're too unique, too incommunicable, too different from me. That primordial solitude that St. John Paul II talked about, the the primitive solitude of being a human being, longs for communion, longs for perfect communion of persons. Today we celebrate the Sunday of the Blessed Trinity, this immediately following Pentecost, where we talk about this kind of weird subject, this theologically high-minded, maybe philosophical idea that God is three in one, one nature, three persons, but all of one substance. We say it in the creed all the time, right? Begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. All that means is that the Father is equal to the Son, is equal to the Holy Spirit. But the three are inseparable. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. What we're saying there is that what we see in human beings, this uniqueness, this utter difference from everything else in creation, That's an image of who God is, what God is in his substance. St. John says, God is love. God is a perfect communion of persons where the Father so loves the Son and the Son so loves the Father that their perfect love for one another proceeds from them into the person of their fellowship, of their love, who is the Holy Spirit, who inhabits the church and animates her like a soul animates a body. That's the mystery that we're drawn up into. The problem is that sometimes we don't think that that's the case. Sometimes we think we're just kind of clever animals or our life really isn't about that communion or we we stop hoping that that's even possible. So we make our lives about something else. Make it about work or about leisure or about pleasure or about, you know, human relationships that just kind of scratch the surface but don't ever really get to the heart of the matter of what I'm looking for. And the problem with that is that if our life is about our work and being useful and being productive citizens, what, what happens when we stop being useful? That's a, a great crisis in many people's lives as they enter old age and they stop being able to produce the way that they used to. Or if your life is about your leisure habits, your hobbies, what about when those things stop being available to you? What if you can't climb mountains anymore? You can't ride your bike anymore? Has human life lost its meaning? There was a, I, I was reading about a chemist who said, if it weren't for chemistry, I'd kill myself. Right? There's something in our life that we've said, this is what's giving my life meaning. This is why I wake up in the morning to do this. And if it weren't for music or art or 
my job or my family, then life would not be worth living. But that's a lie. It's a, it's a false understanding of the human person that reflects a false understanding of the universe and the creative principle behind it that is the triune God of love. Finish with this. Think of maybe the most amazed and, and like the first time we've ever seen a human person kind of attitude of wonder and awe is when a baby is born. My cousin just had a, a, his wife just had a baby a few months ago. And I went to see him when the baby was first born. And this cousin, he's younger than me. I grew up with him. I knew him when he was a snot-nosed little kid. And now he's a dad. And looking at him, look at his baby, was so wonderful. And his, his baby's name is Bo. And he would just hold him. Like, we were hanging out. And all he wanted to do was just, like, show me his baby. And also just to look at him. And, like, look at his arms. Look at his feet. Look at his little face. Oh, he's... You know, he's smiling or he's farting or whatever. Like, it was just so, everything he did was so wonderful to him. And what you don't say when you look at a little baby is, you know, you cost a lot of money. You might say that in your head, but when you're a new father, a new mother, you look at a baby, you don't say, I wish you'd help out around the house. You keep us up late at night. I wish you'd get a job. You know, something like that. Any of the things that, as grown-ups, we might think give our life meaning or make us useful or lovable or worthy. A baby's worthy because he's yours. Because he's a reflection of God's unique, infinite love. And if we could see that in ourselves, in our neighbor, regardless of who the person is, if we could see each and every human person as unique, unrepeatable instance of God's infinite creative love, how different the world would be. The kingdom of God would be in our midst.